Hello and welcome to the Travel Weekly Podcast. I'm Amy Keeley and on this episode I speak to three travel leaders who were inducted into the British Travel and Hospitality Hall of Fame this week. Frank Del Rio, the President and Chief Executive of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings and co-owners of Amma Waterways, Kristin Karst and Rudy Schreiner. But first, I catch up with a city analyst about potential buyers for Thomas Cook, plus why the travel sector is so attractive to private equity investors. Um, I should give your full name. You're Andrew Monk. Um, your job title is? I'm the Chief Executive of VSA Capital, um, which is a small investment bank in London and Shanghai. Okay. And tell us a bit about your, your background in travel. Uh, my background in travel really started... Uh, Back in sort of late 80s, when I started getting involved personally, uh, investing in certain tour operators and also acting for tour operators um, that were listed in the, in the stock market. So for those that remember, I was very involved with Owners Abroad before it then morphed into First Choice and of course is now TUI. Um, I then acted for David Crossens and Air Tours, starting again in the sort of 90s when he just started up. We went from about 19 million market cap up to over 2 billion. I helped bring Carnival Cruise Line in as a shareholder. And I've owned a lot of uh, stakes in private tour operators myself. Probably the best one was Bridge the World, very good friends with Jerry Bridge. And Bridge the World, of course, was taken over by, um, well, Expedia in the end, but it went, went via various other forms. So. Okay. So, so quite, quite experienced. You've seen a lot of changes over the years. I want to talk to you a bit about Thomas Cook. They had a tough year last year. That's been very well documented we all know that but how, how bad is it for them do you think a lot of their problem is not necessarily to do with the way they're trading um, a lot of it of course is to do with their, their debt and equity structure and they have far too much debt which is like having a huge monkey on your back and they need to get rid of it on their trading they have probably made some mistakes I and mean, i think it's fairly clear that you know thomas cook obviously for instance bought air tours a lot of those what i describe as air tours customers who are people who tend to live in the north, who are looking for a cheap and cheerful package. You know, they've all left Thomas Cook and gone to Jet2.com, which is why Jet2.com's done so well. And, you know, losing all those passengers has been a big mistake. Um, having said that, you also shouldn't just think of Thomas Cook as, as a UK tour operator. Actually, the, the bulk of their operations are outside of the UK. OK. Um, they put their airline up for sale and closed 21 shops recently. They made um, quite a few staff redundant. What else can or should they do? Well, I mean, they need to obviously um, talk to the banks, which they're doing anyway. Um, and they, they probably do at this stage. I mean, Thomas Cook has been a, a roller coaster ride. And, you know, they, they made mistakes like Harriet Green probably was a terrible mistake. They, they need a bit of stability, which they just haven't had now for a long, long time. And probably the answer to that is that they do need some sort of drastic restructuring, be it a, a, a very strong partner, Fosun is already there, but perhaps could come in and be stronger, or, yeah, get taken over, be it by another tour operator or another group, or into private equity, where they can restructure it without the spotlight of the stock market. Because, yeah, you mentioned Fosun there, they're already a, a, a shareholder, aren't they? They were mentioned um, in all that speculation a week or so ago, and who might be interested in buying Cook. EQT and KKR were also mentioned. What other kinds of businesses or private equity firms or, or whoever would, would, would be interested, do you think? Have you heard of, it, of any others? I think, look, I think there could be 
various people who could be interested and often you get a surprise who comes out of out of the blue private equity they'd obviously be looking to do some sort of um they tend to use, want to use a lot of debt in order to leverage well they've already got a lot of debt so i'm not so sure it is a private equity deal as it stands for the whole of thomas cook Foson are already there you know they have a big stake they own club med already Foson have pretty much unlimited amounts of cash that they could spend and the growth of the Chinese tourism market is huge. So you've got to say that they're the favourite, um, although they've got to sort out the airline issue, but I don't see that as difficult. Um, and let's just explain so to anyone who doesn't know, um, the reason that they'd have to sell the airline first if Fosen was to buy Kirk. There are very strict rules about ownership of airlines within Europe. So you have to have it basically majority owned by a European operator. And I mean, we know that just from the Brexit where we're having these issues. Um, but they are very strict. Um, Presumably, if they did that, if they did sell the airline, they'd be able to pay off some of their debt. Yeah, look, potentially they could. I mean, the airline is a, is a very valuable airline. It has some very interesting slots um, at airports. Um, but most importantly is what they would be able to do is effectively sell it to someone and guarantee them a return on their money by saying, look, actually, we'll buy all the seats back off you and we'll run the risk of that. So, I mean, they could literally sell it to someone and say, look, we will buy all the seats back off you. So, as an example, we will guarantee you £100 million worth of profit on that airline. So that would be about a £1 million per plane. And if you were doing that, somebody would probably say, OK, I'm going to get a return of £100 million guaranteed. I don't mind paying a P of 10, so I'll pay a billion dollars. So long as it then goes into somebody else's ownership, the fact that, say, Fosun was buying all those seats is, is irrelevant. So there clearly is a very valuable asset there. OK. You were quoted in Travel Weekly um, in last week's edition saying Thomas Cook is, is the best holiday brand in the, wor- in the world. So talk, talk a bit more about that. I, I mean, I think Thomas Cook as a brand is, is so well known globally. I mean, it was one of the original tour operators. Um, came actually from taking people to Belgium. It was of Belgian origin, over 100 years. I mean, it's a brand we all know and love. Um, and like a lot of very good brands, you, sh- you really should just leave them and let the brand be the, 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 the selling point. And perhaps one of the things that Thomas Cook has got wrong in the past has been trying to change that image of the brand. It's not Thomas Cook is a great brand. Thomas Cook stands for holidays. It stands for adventure. You know if you're going Thomas Cook, you're going to get quality. So I think it is very valuable and... This is why Fosun is so interesting, because the Chinese really understand Western brands. They love them. And with all of these Chinese tourists that are now starting to come overseas, the idea of going on a Thomas Cook holiday would be very appealing. So you see the opportunity for Cook for growth is in that Chinese market? I think there is a huge opportunity, not just for Thomas Cook, by the way, I think for a lot of people, but Thomas Cook are there. You know, they've openly said they want to try and uh, capture that growth. They've got Fosun as a partner. Fosun is one of the most powerful uh, investors in China. It's the sort of Warren Buffet of, of China. So, I mean, what a great shareholder to have. Okay. Do you, you quoted some time ago about Thomas Cook's senior management structure not being perhaps... Um, well, you tell me what you said. I can't, I can't recall well, exactly. I, but... I have been on record for saying, look, they have, I think, eight non-executive directors... And basically, if you look at them, virtually none of them have what I describe as tour operating experience. You know, they're all very good people, don't get me wrong. They have fantastic jobs, but they're more what I describe as in the sort of McKinsey management consulting type. Oh, let's bring in a management consultant to bring that out. You know, these people tend to get paid a lot of money. They don't have what that... Tour operating is one of those industries where you have to really be right in it. 
you know, it's a very live industry. You have to really understand the mentality of people and what drives them. And I think this is one of the reasons why they've lost all this business to Jet2.com. They haven't really sort of seen that coming. And Thomas Cook has lacked, in my view, that down-to-earth tour operating experience. And again, that goes back to the Harriet Green situation. Harriet Green knew nothing about tour operating, but she was, you know, big ideas and all of this, great at the PR, but she needed to know about tour operating. You know, it'd be like me bringing into my business somebody who knew nothing about investment banking in the stock market but had great sort of management consulting experience. They'd get lost. Yeah. Well, they've brought in Will Waggett, haven't they, recently? And he is a, a real tour operating um, nuts and bolts man. So presumably that's a, that's a positive move. And, yeah, no, it is, that, that is a positive move. And I think they need to bring in more people like that, really, to, to really who have a good understanding of the industry. Have we seen what, what he's done yet? So it's still early days. I think it's still early days. Look, you know, you have to give people quite a bit of time. And, I mean, there's a lot of other issues that Thomas Cook that are probably, you know, on people's minds. Um, but, yeah, look, it's one step in the right direction. OK. Just broadening out from Thomas Cook, private equity generally, um, talking to talk about that, a lot of private equity investment going on at the moment in travel, well, well I, I think there is. Um, what makes travel so attractive, do you think? The answer to that probably is it, it, there is nothing about travel particularly that necessarily makes it attractive. But one thing about travel is it's, it's the valuation of travel companies tends to be very volatile. So you get times when they're very valuable and times when no one wants to touch them at all. Um, right now, probably not many people want to touch them. And so they all look pretty cheap, which is why private equity will come along and look at it. What you do know about travel companies, though, is that basically every year people still go on holiday. Every year it grows. More people go on holiday. And so actually as an industry, if you can take a long-term view and buy cheap but then sell high, which is what private equity love doing, it's probably a pretty good bet. Okay. Andrew, thank you very much. This week, Frank Del Rio, President and Chief Executive of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, was honoured alongside the co-owners of Amma Waterways, Christian Karst and Rudy Schreiner, at the British Travel and Hospitality Hall of Fame. Frank is a 25-year veteran of the cruise industry. In 2002, he founded Oceania Cruises. Five years later, a private equity firm took a majority stake in the business and later acquired Regent Seven Seas to form Prestige Cruise Holdings. In 2014, Frank sold the company to Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings to create the world's third largest diversified cruise operator. He assumed his current role in January 2015, and under his leadership, the business has grown to a fleet of 26 ships and has achieved some significant milestones, including the first sailings to Cuba in over 50 years by an established North American cruise brand. Okay, so you emigrated from Cuba when you were six years old, or you were almost seven. You returned several times on board your ships after U.S. Cuba, um, the U.S. and Cuba restored diplomatic relations. So, what was what was that like for you personally? Well, it was 54 years um, in between visits. You know, I left 1961, and I didn't return until um, 2016, uh, and it was very emotional. Very, you know, uh, I went with my entire family. My son, my daughter, my grandchildren, my wife. Uh, my dad had just passed away, and I was a little sad because uh, he so much wanted to go back. He never was able to. Um, 
and my mom um, is um, is ill, and so she couldn't make it either. But uh, it was very, very emotional to to be able to uh, go back and and see the place that you've heard so much about that that I still remember. I you know I was almost seven years old, a couple of weeks short of my seventh birthday, and then unfortunately things in Cuba haven't changed a whole lot. So um, I remember it a lot more than I should because. Uh, uh, many things remain the same. Did you go back to your childhood oh, yeah. home and yeah. area? I went back home and um, it was funny, I knocked on the door of my home and um, I said to the gentleman, um, I'm sorry to bother you, but my name is, and he, he stopped me, he says, I know who you are. And, uh, and they were very welcoming and, and every time I, I go to Havana, and I've now gone back nine times, I always drop by. We've become friends. Um, um, he um, he lets me in my home as if it was still my home, and so I, I thought that was very uh, very gracious of him. Do you still have any family in Cuba? I um, I have an aunt, uh, my father's sister, uh, two cousins, Louis and George. They've changed in the last fifty five years. Really? I, I didn't <laughs> hardly recognize them. Yeah, <laughs> it's surprising. Okay. Um, you trained as an accountant, um, so you migrated, migrated to the U.S. with your yeah. family. Um, you lived with a family member, I think, when you first arrived. Is that correct? I did. Uh, we, you know, my, my father had a, a sister and a brother. So my Uncle Benny and my Aunt Sarah lived in this small town called New Britain, Connecticut, because they had emigrated to the U.S. before the Cuban Revolution. And so uh, back then, uh, the, the thought was that the, the, the Castro revolution would last a few months at the most, and the U.S. would somehow um, fix it. And so we were just visiting Uncle Benny and Aunt Sarah for a few weeks. And for the first two or three months, I never even went to school because why? I, I have a school back home, you know. And, but... Um, after a, a while, you know, a seven-year-old rambunctious kid uh, all, all day in a small apartment can get to anyone. And so uh, I, I, they finally enrolled me in school, and we ended up living in New Britain, Connecticut for 10 years before we moved to Miami, where, um, where it's been home all this time. And you went on to train as an accountant. Yes. Um, and you, then you went on to set up Oceania Cruises. Yeah. So just tell us a bit about that, that period for, for those that don't know. Well, I was a real lousy accountant. And, oh, I was terrible. Um, and so I had to find a new career because I wasn't going to go very far being a lousy accountant. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go work um, for a company in Fort Lauderdale, not too far from Miami, called Renaissance Cruises, um, where I learned the cruise business. And um, Renaissance, uh, unfortunately, Renaissance fired me um, in the spring of 2001. You know what happened in the fall of 2001, 9-11. Uh, Renaissance went bankrupt a few weeks later, and the French government that had uh, financed eight brand new Renaissance ships took them over. And a few months later, they reached out to me, um, wondering if I was interested in starting a new cruise line with their support. I actually turned them down twice before I came to my senses, and they convinced me that uh, while they couldn't guarantee that I would win this prize of, of little brand new ships. Um, to start our new cruise line, that they would give me a fair shot, and they did. And I ended up um, winning, if you will, the uh, the competition for these vessels. And we started Oceana Cruises with a whopping seven million dollars in capital, uh, which is uh, very, very little uh, in the cruise business. 
and we got very, very lucky. Uh, I was able to recruit a uh, handful of uh, executives to help me launch Oceana, all of them which are still with me today. Bob Binder is the president of Oceana. Uh, Robin Lindsay runs uh, the ships. Franco Cimarrao runs the hotel. Um, my, uh, my son, who was in law school, quit law school to join us. My daughter, who had just graduated from college, joined us. And so it was very much a family affair. And they're still working? Uh, no, they, uh, they, they both left me. Okay. I'm, I'm the only one who still works. Okay. But um, it was very much a family affair, and it still is the culture of our company, even though it's grown to 26 vessels, 11 more in order. Is still very much a, a family-oriented uh, business, which I think is one of the ingredients of our secret sauce. We're not a big, cold corporation. It's still, uh, uh, it's still a family business. Okay. And how do you envisage the, the cruise sector changing and evolving in the next 10, 20 years? I mean, so many cruise lines have ships on order. It's growing, yeah. capacity's growing all the time. We've got Virgin Voyages, we've got Ritz-Carlton, you know, outside players coming to the market. Yeah. How, how do you think it's going to look in yeah, 10, Well, it's years? been evolving. It's not that it's going to start evolving. Uh, the cruise industry has been evolving ever since uh, Columbus sailed to America with Anita Pinto de Santa Maria, right? And so it's... Um, it's a wonderful industry, uh, uh, full of entrepreneurs, and you mentioned a few new entrants uh, that we're very happy to see. It keeps things uh, alive. It keeps things uh, jumping. You have to be on your toes to compete uh, with the established players and those that come into the marketplace with new ideas. So we welcome those players. We think it's good for a, a vibrant industry to to uh, to have new entrants. Um, yeah, and yes, the industry will continue to evolve. Ships are getting bigger. Small ships get bigger. Big ships get bigger. Um, I mean, take take our latest vessel, the Norwegian Bliss Joy Encore. Uh, imagine a thousand foot racetrack on top of a vessel, double decker, eight turns, curved, cantilevered, all oh, all the time. You know, it was my grandson's idea to uh, to have a racetrack uh, on board and. Uh, um, and uh, we were able to do it. We're the only cruise line that have. The, they're phenomenal. I mean, if I had 30 minutes left on this earth, I'd spend at least 10 minutes of it on, the, on those racetracks. It's, it's the most fun I've had since I learned how to ride a bike. So uh, those kinds of innovations, uh, new itineraries, uh, the cruise industry opens up the world. I mean, look what we've done in Myanmar, what we've done in Cuba. Um, uh, and hopefully uh, now what we're beginning to do to reopen the, the eastern Mediterranean and Turkey and the Black Sea. Do you think cruise will ever become mainstream? Oh, it already has. You know, uh, 29 million people cruised in 2018. We expect 50 million by 2030. And more people would cruise if there were more ships. I mean, today we all believe that we're capacity constrained. Every ship sails full which is very, very different in the hotel industry. You know, if you're a hotelier and your rooms are 75% full, you'd be very, very happy. If you're an airline and your seats uh, on, your, on your airplanes are 75 80% full, you'd be ecstatic. At 75% occupancy, we'd go broke. And so our ships, not only my three brands, but our industry, we go full. And so uh, in order to grow the business, we must add new ships. And that's why, as you mentioned earlier, there's over 120 vessels on order uh, for delivery between now and 2028. Mm. 
vast, isn't it? I suppose I meant in the UK, the cruise still represents still a very small percentage of the overall holiday market. Yeah. So I, I suppose perhaps it's much bigger in the US, obviously. But in the UK, I think there's still some work to go to make that mainstream, well, and that, that will take years. The, the UK is, I, I believe, number three. Um, there's uh, Germany, China, and the UK all battling yeah, yeah, there yeah. for number two and three, uh, about two million people a year. But again, capacity constraint. Every vessel that we operate out of the UK uh, is full. Um, And so I I think there's a a lot of potential, wonderful potential, profitable potential um, for the UK and for greater Europe to gain a a larger and larger market share. You mentioned um, that you've got um, 11 ships on order, or I mentioned it, one of us did, um, and you've had fleet upgrades as well on on the brands some are some are ongoing do you intend to acquire any ships that come up for sale i mean because the shipyards are busy aren't they yeah you know it's very rare that uh one one brand sells ships to another because all all ships are full uh brands are successful and so it's very rare. So, no, I, I don't anticipate that uh, that happening. What about consolidation in the markets? We saw Royal Caribbean take a majority stake in Silver Sea. Yeah. Do you see more of that kind of thing happening? And, 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 and is Norwegian um, on, the, on the lookout? Yeah. You know, that uh, consolidation is, uh, is something that's been alive and well for decades. Uh, today, Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings is what it is because it acquired Prestige Cruise Holdings, Ocean and Region, in 2014. So I, I assume that uh, over time um, the consolidation trend will, will continue. Um, just like in any other industry, the bigger players end up uh, taking over smaller players, players that may be struggling um, financially, lack of capital, etc. So yeah, I, I anticipate that will continue. And what about river, river cruising? Is that something that you can see um, ocean cruise lines get going into? Well, a couple have, right? Uh, in fact, River uh, Viking started as a river, and now they're in an ocean. ocean yeah, and, and Crystal started in an ocean, and now they're into river. So I think there's going to be going to see more of that crossover. I think in many uh, in many cases, the the past guest file, if you will, of a uh, of a particular brand can certainly um, um, be be better utilized in expanding that brand to to other facets of the of the you know, cruising market. So, yeah, I, I imagine that you're going to see more and more would, growth there. Something Norwegian would, would consider? Um, um, you know, never say no. We're very happy to, uh, managing the three brands that we have today, 11 ships on order, representing 50% increase over the next uh, seven or eight years. So we have our hands full, but uh, always uh, on the lookout for opportunities. In the UK, uh, the brands have separate bosses and teams. Have you ever looked at um, changing that structure? No, no. You know, um, I fiercely defend having uh, people focus on individual brands. So in the States, we manage it the same way. Um, There's a a president and CEO of Oceana. There's one for a region. There's one for Norwegian. And internationally, I have a president of international, Harry Summer, who you might have met. And in turn, he has um, country GMs, if you will, per brand. We do have a consolidated back office so that we can take advantage of our scale in IT, accounting, purchasing, marine operations, things of that nature. But in terms of customer-facing, travel agent-facing, anything to do with 
the consumer, the brand. We want people focus on, on their particular brand. And they compete fiercely against each other as much as they compete with uh, other uh, companies that aren't owned by us. And, and in terms of the UK market, how is it performing for you? It's performing uh, a lot better than you'd expect with all the noise around Brexit. Um, we just introduced our free at sea program at Norwegian in the last four weeks, and business is up 27%. So we're very, very uh, committed to the UK market. Um, it is, by all accounts, one of our top um, three markets in the world for all three brands. Um, so we're, um, we're very committed to the brand and uh, met this morning with uh, Eamon and, and uh, Bernie and, and Graham, and they gave me uh, lots of good ideas on how to grow the business that we're going to follow up. Okay, going full circle, just to get to look back on your whole career so far, what's been the number one highlight, if you can pick one? Well, the number one highlight has to be uh, starting Oceana Cruises from scratch. You know, being the founder of Oceana is, uh, um, you know, quite an accomplishment. It was a lot of fun, a lot of risk. It was... Uh, was it stress? It must have been stressful at the time, though. Oh, but it was but wonderful stress. You can look stress. back on it. It was okay. wonderful stress. I do it all over again every day. Um, it was a do or die. Um, uh, like I said, I was a lousy accountant without much capital uh, in an industry uh, full of titans and humongous companies, and I had one little uh, secondhand vessel, and uh, no one expected us to survive, much less succeed. And um, we proved everybody wrong. Um, within three years, we sold the majority of the company to a private equity firm for over $800 million. And then together, we bought Regent from, um, uh, from what's the name of that big company? The Carlson Company. How could I forget? Yeah, from I the Carlson Companies and um, formed Prestige Cruise Holdings. We operated it along with our private equity partners, Apollo, which were wonderful partners. And then in um, the fall of 2014, we sold it to Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings for $3.3 billion. So um, it we've was the made beginning of, of, of all of that. Really, all of that, yeah. yeah. But along the way, we've, um, we've made a lot of investors a lot of money. Uh, the original investors in Oceana, can you imagine? They invested $7 million and they reaped $800 million. And then um, a few years later, uh, we sold it again to, to Norwegian Cruise Line. And then I thought I was going to retire. You know, you sold your company twice, and um, I had turned 60. Um, I had made some money, so life was good. And um, that's how it was for six weeks. Are you going, are you going to retire soon? No. Are you stick around? No, I'm going to stick around. I've gotten used to this now. Um, my wife has given up trying to convince me to retire, and uh, we're doing great. Got all these ships on order, and... Um, I'm going to reti- I'm not going to retire. Now. Okay. Well, congratulations again on your honor. Thank you. Husband and wife team Rudy Schreiner and Kristin Carr set up Amma Waterways in 2002 along with their friend Jimmy Murphy. But their love of river cruising started well before then. Rudy joined Uniworld in 1990 to develop new tours in Eastern Europe. And with the completion of the main Danube Canal in 1992, Rudy envisaged a new tourism business developing. Kristin grew up south of Dresden on the banks of the River Elbe and started her career at a travel agency handwriting airline tickets. 
She worked at American Express for a number of years before moving to Viking Cruises, where she met Rudy and their relationship, both in and out of work, began. Amma Waterways now has a fleet of 21 ships, which will grow to 23 by the end of the year. You are one of only three married couples to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. What is that like? What is it like working as a couple? It has been actually a fantastic experience because, first of all, we met in the industry. So we met actually at Viking River Cruises and we started working together and we had a good time working together. Yeah. It hasn't been easy the first few years because uh, everybody has little different opinions about certain things. Yeah, and after several years, and we slowly sorted out uh, who's responsible for what and so on. So we divided up the responsibilities so that uh, avoided a little of the arguments. Conflict. Now I stay out of her responsibilities and she still gets involved in my responsibilities. You respect each other's spaces. <laughs> Partially. Mostly. I respect hers. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what are you going to say in response to that, Kristen? It's good to come second after yeah, last yeah. word, right? Definitely. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously we share the same visions, the same values, and that's extremely important. Uh, but we have different fields of expertise. And as Rudy said, uh, you know, he's running mainly operations, accounting, uh, finance, everything. For me, it's about reservation sales and marketing. Even so, we both actually um, like to contribute uh, to the thoughts of the other one. Um, Rudy likes to count numbers as well when it comes to sales, and he's keeping me on track while I uh, like to get involved in innovations because, you know, to opening up our cruises to more and more customers um, from the different areas where they come from, you have to develop your product for this. Um, and, and this is actually quite interesting and lots of fun. And uh, this is how we also get together again. You've been described as Rudy builds the ships and Kristen fills them. So it, that, is that accurate? That is pretty accurate, yes. I mean, when we started with our first ship, we all got involved. I mean, we have a, a shipbuilder in Holland, yeah, Kurt Kampuisen and his wife Marianne, but on the first ship, the four of us, Kurt, Marianne, Christine and me, we went to the fa furniture shops, the fabric shops and so on. The four of us really decided on pretty much every detail. Uh, today, when it comes to color selections, she's still heavily involved, yeah. But uh, I'm involved more on the hardware side, and uh, she's still more still in, involved in the software. Yeah, the, the customer service, that's very much your, your focus, hardware, isn't it? from the ship side, the software from the ship side as well, and that's exactly what okay. it is, the structure and also the people behind from the software side. It's a perfect because, partnership, really. Yeah, it is. It yeah. really, really is, yeah. Okay. Even, so, even so, I feel that um, we both really... We like to be on the other side sometimes as well, just to back up the other person too. Uh, and sometimes it's good to change the roles a little bit. Do, when you go home in the evening, I mean, do you just t constantly talk about work or do you have a rule where you're like, no, right, actually, no work at it home? Was, it was all the starter. She said, no more business talks at the dining room table. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is actually how we keep it. We, we talk a lot during the day, 
and we are alone in the evening as well. But so often, it's actually quite fun to have different topics. Definitely, yeah, like you sure. mentioned. Okay. You're christening three ships this year. You've christened one just recently, one of the three, Amadoro. You're going to christen Amamora in June, I think I'm right in saying, and then the, the much-awaited um, ship Amamagna uh, in, in July will be christened. Both in July. Both. Oh, sorry, ones. both in July, sorry. Um, so that's quite a lot of ships to, to christen in a year. Why did you cram them all into to 12 months and I not mean, spread them out? The reason is really the Amamagna. The Amamagna is a ship... You cannot physically plan a certain time or a certain year to start. Yeah, you start with the project because it, it is a total new prototype. So we, we have been working on the Magna for somewhere around five to six years. Yeah, and then it just became ready at the same time when other two other ships became ready. Yeah, initially it was already we already had the idea to start the Magna in 2018. Yeah, I remember. Then, I was I was there for the first yeah. look actually. Yeah. yeah, and then we had to delay it to 19 because of uh, logistics and so on, transportation. Because the ship was the hull was built in Serbia. And then we had to transfer the ship uh, for, its, for the interior to the Netherlands. And initially, my idea was to bring the ship up to Germany from Serbia and bring the Dutch workers down. But the Dutch workers kind of refused to come down to Germany. So we had to physically bring the ship down to Constanza, to the Black Sea, ship it around the Greek islands, Sicily, Portugal, Spain, all the way to the Netherlands, finish it there. And then uh, after it's done, shipping it back to, to the Black Sea. So that alone was a logistic nightmare. And at the time when we discussed this whole project, yeah, there was also this, uh, the issues with Turkey. Mm. Yeah, we were not sure anymore if the ship even could make it back through the Bosporus five or three years later and so on. Yeah. So this is uh, the whole time frame of planning uh, the navigation around and so on. Yeah, it took a while, so, but that's why the ship finished uh, this year. Okay. And in terms <clears throat> of sales for, for Amma Magna, how, how are they going? Mm-hmm. Well, quickly also back to to three ships. Uh, I believe that after almost 18 years in business, our customer customer database has grown so much more than what it was 10 years ago. So we always had a controlled growth um, quality over quantity, and this remains basically our forte. Um, But we have so many more guests who want to explore new rivers. Uh, They want to come back maybe on the same river, different shore excursions, different ships like Amamagna. So that's why it was important actually for us to build three ships this year. Sales is going extremely well on Amamagna because we feel we open, um, again, a new clientele. And that's the ocean cruiser that has never come on a river cruise because it was too limited, too regimented. Cabin's way too small because the ship this is, is really narrow, right? On a river cruise ship. And now it's the double white size. And it'll be Europe's biggest river um, vessel. Yeah, big, right? but I think big for river cruising is not really a good word. Um, because so often, you know, we hear the smaller, it's more cozy, it's more intimate. And I would agree to this. But we only have not even 20% more guests on board the double white ship. So I always say it's the luxury of more. The cabin size in the average is like a sweet size on a normal river cruise ship, more than 355 square feet large, with a big owner suite and four grand suites. 
And then, of course, for restaurants, five bars. Mm. So it's like a luxury floating resort mm. on the river. Mm. And we have a lot of guests coming from luxury ocean ships. I was going to ask, have, have, have the profile of your guests the, changed the then? The profile uh, definitely goes into luxury ocean cruising coming now mm. on board, okay. but also many river cruisers who just want to come and explore a different oh, ship oh, on the river. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sales uh, initially started slow, partially also because the other ships we do have already charters and so on two, three years in the ahead. Whereas on the Magna, first of all, he wasn't sure what year it will start and so on. So the, it started much slower than the other ships, and then it picked up and it passed sales on the other ships. So it's going extremely well, uh, and it's doing well for the future also. Okay. So very happy with the way it's going. So you're going to build, build <clears throat> more vessels actually, of this size? <clears throat> actually, there's not a plan right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is a vessel specifically built for the Danube. It cannot go on any other river. If you do something on the Rhine, then the, the, the problem with the Rhine is if you build a larger ship, you are restricted how far uh, you can go up the river because you cannot really go into Switzerland or into, into the upper part of the Rhine. So we are right now set with this one. Yeah, we'll see how it goes the next couple of years. We are very happy. I mean, this is just the one unique ship for the Danube. But uh, still the future is going to be in ships which can navigate all 3,000 miles and basically can be brought to all 15 countries. So. Okay. Mm. Okay. And of course with the Danube, this year it's on the upper Danube, but next year it will be on the, on the lower Danube as well. So different and itineraries. The, different itineraries yeah. and the lower Danube is actually getting so popular now. That's why we also triple the lower Danube departures okay. in 2021. Because pretty much today everyone wants to see Romania, Bulgaria, Croatia, Serbia. So all these countries that used to be behind the Yeah, Iron yeah, Britain. of course. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the UK um, market, you set up a dedicated UK office in 2016. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Stuart Pearl heads up that, that mm-hmm. office. Um, so how is the UK market p- performing for, for AMA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we are very, very happy with what we see in the UK market. We came into this market because... We were here already with a different company for almost 10 years. Um, they are also here tonight. We had a wonderful partnership uh, with Fred Olsen Travel before. And um, I do believe that we still have to grow our brand, the luxury brand of river cruising, a little bit more in the UK. But that's why our office is here. The travel partners, travel agencies have given us already phenomenal support. Um, but... That's why we know there are so many, many more opportunities. And of course, to come you're and being, being honoured here, here at the Hall of Fame this week, um, which will only raise your, your profile. It's obviously a, a nod into how um, appreciated and, and admired you are in the industry. It's a deep so, honour to be yeah. recognised here in this Absolutely. market. And you've got a nice holiday planned afterwards, haven't you? It sounds like <laughs> to celebrate. So you've ta- looks, it sounds lovely. We were talking about it working, um, before. Working, working sorry, working. working sorry, that's probably what you've told. That's what you've told Stuart or his team. I've, 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 I've exposed you, sorry. Um, okay, so any, any plans to celebrate uh, your, your honour? Other than the holiday, <laughs> that you're not, that you're, you're working trips. So. <laughs> I would say the entire life is celebration, right? <laughs> you know, there's almost no division between working and leisure. We love what we do. That's very lucky. And that's yeah. why, right? I mean, there is never 
a day in life where we really work okay. because and it's our passion. We live it, we eat it, we breathe it. Brilliant. Okay. Oh. Well, thank you both very much and enjoy um, the awards tonight. Um, congratulations. Congratulations to the other industry leaders who were also inducted into the British Travel and Hospitality Hall of Fame this week. Beatrice Tolman, founder of the Red Carnation Hotel Collection, and Gary and Rita Beckwith, founders of City Cruises. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe and rate us on the Apple Podcast app. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for our next episode, which will be out in two weeks' time.